Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're talking about the ark and the temple, meeting God in the past, present, and future. We hope you'll join us. Two podcasts ago, we learned that the temple was the wonder of the ancient world. Herod made it so. Still, that's only the beginning because someone would have to pay for it, pay to build it, then also pay to maintain it. And that someone would be every male over 20 years of age. The roots come in Exodus chapter 30, verse 13, which says that every person of that age should give an annual contribution of a half shekel to then would be the sanctuary and later would be the temple. And in the first century, a half shekel would be seven grams of silver or two drachmas. I have a friend named Danny Herman who is an archaeologist and a guide in Israel, and he has a website called Danny the Digger, which is really a lot of fun. And he posed the question, what would the value of seven grams of silver be if we did a wage calculation? In one of Jesus' parables, a day's worth of work in the vineyard is a denarius. This is Matthew 20, verse 2. And a denarius is 3.4 grams of silver. So a half a shekel is worth two days of labor in the vineyard. And so Danny went ahead and made a wage comparison to say that that that, that money today would be between $50 and $75 uh, U.S. dollars. Okay, $50 and $75 U.S. dollars annually for support of the temple. In the first century uh, AD, which is the world of Jesus, eight to 10 million adult males then would contribute $150 million USD uh, to the to the temple. That's the kind of machine their religion had become. The temple was a huge complex. I like to say it was the best known, best known and best run nonprofit in the ancient world, with the city of Jerusalem swelling from say twenty five thousand to thirty five thousand to a million people, and all uh, giving their half shekels annually to support it. Well, this also supports a strange little story now. It's only found in Matthew that has to do with the temple tax. I'm going to read it to you. It's Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. I'll see if I can't uh, unpack it. When they reached Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes, he does. And when he came home, Jesus spoke of it first, asking, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll of tribute? From their children or from others? And when Peter said, From others, Jesus said to them, Then the children are free. However, so that we do not give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a coin and take that and give them for you and for me. Well, the word coin there is actually translated stator, uh, which is a coin that would cover the cost of the temple tax for two people. It's four drachmas. Now, It's a strange story, right? I mean, miracles happen. Jesus can walk on water and he can (laughs) feed 5,000 people and raise dead people. But this story is actually a little more, is is a little more um, realistic than you know. Tilapia are the predominant fish that are caught in the Sea of Galilee and and they were in Jesus' day too. It's a robust native African tilapia, not like the tilapia that we grow in ponds here in the United States. And they feed on algae on the northwest shore of the lake, which is where Capernaum is located. And then as such, they're also mouth brooders, which means that they keep their young in their mouths and they will pick up stones from the bottom of the lake and hold a stone in their mouth while they have their babies. So this miracle of the coin in the fish's mouth is not quite so fabulous as it seems at first when you look at them in their context. So it's a real tax 
uh, with real people and a real fish and a real coin. Okay, so so far so good. We've learned a little bit now about all the cash that flows into the temple coffers every year uh, with this annual tax. But there were other ways to give at the festivals, and these would be your offerings when you got there. So I'm going to read a little story from Luke chapter 21, which is a snapshot of this of this world, and then I'm going to see if I can't unpack it a little bit more. Just a few verses. It's called the widow's offering, and I'll bet you know it. Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. And Jesus looked up and saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she in her poverty has put in all that she had to live on. I think this is a cool contrast. The two copper coins are actually something worth one-fortieth of a penny. Okay, this is like the lowest uh, denomination in existence. It's called a lepta, just this little poor poor lady in her coin. Comparing that to the $150 million going into the temple coffers every year. Um, When you think about the temple... I want you to consider uh, grandeur and size and three courts. So the Temple Mount is some 40 acres of just flat uh, limestone wonder of the ancient world. The Mount itself is as impressive as the Temple. And the Temple Mount becomes a a large bazaar or marketplace. And it's called the Court of the Gentiles, which means that anybody can go in and anybody can look at it. And, you know, if they could take selfies in those days, they would. But everybody wanted to see what was going on in the Temple. So anybody could stand in the Court of the Gentiles. And then around the Temple was a wall. And inside was the Court of the Women, meaning Jewish women, uh, as you entered into the Temple precincts. And then within that, almost like a Russian nesting doll, right? Within that was another court called the court of the Israelite men before then the inner sanctum for the priest alone. But in the court of women, there were 13 collection boxes and they were known as trumpets uh, they, because they were flared at the top and narrow at the bottom like a trumpet. So they could collect things. There were collection vessels. And, and what they would collect in addition to your annual temple tax, uh, you were able to give an offering as part of your worship. And this offering could be for wood, for the sacrifices, it could be for incense to burn, and then mostly it would be for alms. And, and that's what they have the offerings for as prescribed in the laws of Moses. And so in the last week of Jesus' life, which is Luke 21, Jesus has just been been riddled with questions and has just finished a grilling from his opponents again when he sees this woman. It has to give him the inspiration to keep going. It has to give him to warm his heart to see uh, this woman giving from her heart the two bronze mites, the widow's mites, the lepton, uh, this, this tiny little offering yet worth so much more than the marble and the grandeur and the height of the temple around him, right? So much more than the wonder of the ancient world because she gave from the heart. I don't know if this tradition is going away. It seems to be, as more people give online. But I used to man a Salvation Army kettle in my younger days. And I used to think that all people, especially clergy, but I think that all people should at some point in their lives ring a bell in a frozen parking lot outside of a mall and watch shoppers hurry by You know, as, as, as they go in to, to spend their money on their loved ones and their family. And I, I will tell you that it could be the loneliest uh, time in the world when you just have to ring it away and nobody giving. I do remember one time in seminary, and this probably inspired me to give, uh, they had someone who was obviously doing some sort of court-ordered uh, 
public service because he would he would use such profanity for people who would try to ignore him that they would turn around and empty their pockets and put it in the kettle. I never did that. Uh, but I do remember being dispirited when a woman hurried by wearing a what would Jesus do sweatshirt. And so you can be really lonely when it comes to watching uh, the, the bit about giving. And you know what? It's always been that way. King Solomon, right? Mighty King Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon, the the, the lavish spending of Solomon. We, we know those stories, the son of King David. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 6, we're told that it took him seven years to build God's house, seven years to build the temple with all the gold and the cedars of Lebanon and all that stuff. But if you keep reading 1 Kings chapter 7, it took him 13 years to build his house. So he took 13 years on his house and seven on the temple, which is which is kind of a story, right? I used to have a bishop, he's now dead and gone to be with Jesus, but he had formerly been Methodist clergy, and his Methodist clergy spouse, his wife, uh, now goes to my church. And she told me that that when you're Methodist clergy, you move around from church to church, you move every couple years, and you live in these 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 parsonages that aren't yours. And she said one of the most demeaning things that ever happened to her, she came home from work one day, she was a school teacher, and someone on the parsonage committee had got new drapes for their home, so they simply put their old drapes in the parsonage while she was at work without even asking her. She said she never felt so so poor in her life and so uh, less thought of. I just wondered, do we do this without giving to God, right? I mean, do we give from our front pocket or do we give just what's left over? And we might be tempted to conclude from stories like this that Jesus really doesn't like money or like us to have money, right? But it's not really all that easy. We like to quote First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 as saying, money is the root of all evil, right? So get rid of it. When the text really says the love of money is the root of all evil. And I like to lay alongside the story of the widow's might a parable from Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to read a few verses to you because because it's all about money from a God's eye point of view. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent him into the vineyard. And when he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. And he went out again about noon and about three o'clock and he did the same. And about five o'clock he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and going to the first. And when those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought that they would receive more, But each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same that I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Well, I've always thought of this parable as the scandal of grace, and it is the scandal of grace. God can be generous in many ways, but it's also a bird's eye view of how God views money. I lead a prosperous congregation, and as such, I will remind successful people that money is just a tool. 
and we're not valued by whether we have it or we don't have it. Money is just a tool that can be used for good or bad. And the creation of wealth is a talent like singing or art. There are some people who just know how to make money, to build a legacy of money. And they aren't any necessarily better or even smarter. It's just one more way that we can use our gifts and our talents to make the world better. And this is the God's eye view of money. How can we leverage all the talents that we might have How can we take our heart and meet the deepest needs of the world? And wealthy people can give from their heart just as poor widows. Let's not forget that when St. Paul started these early churches in places in the backs of our Bible that you can find on a map today, these churches were started by people with resources uh, like Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, or Priscilla and Aquila, who gave of their resources to build a church so that the church could happen. To whom much is given, much is expected. Well, that's one story. But if we remember that Luke also has a sequel in our library, uh, the book of Acts is a sequel to Luke. We forget this because the book of John sits in between it, unfortunately. Uh, There's another giving story that happens in the same spot. And this is when people don't realize the connection between the two. But right there by the place of trumpeting, uh, the the golden trumpets that take the offerings right there in the court of women, uh, there's another story that happens for disciples of Jesus post-Easter. And it's Acts chapter 3. So just imagine the same spot in the temple, same festival, same full court of the Gentiles, same $150 million going into the coffers. And now we've got a new scene. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going into the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the beautiful gate so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. And Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And jumping up, he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate in the temple. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. There's been some question about what what the where the beautiful gate might have been in the temple precincts, but I believe that it happened in the same spot as the widow's mite, which means that the beautiful gate is also a gate called the Nicanor Gate, which separated the court of the women from the court of the Israelites. And it it was by repute the best of all the gates. It was the most beautiful of all the gates because it was made of Corinthian bronze, which is a cool little legend in itself. In 146 BC. As the Roman Empire began its expansion, they burned a city named Corinth to the ground. Corinth was on the Achaean Peninsula, and it was a a beautiful city. Uh, It was a port city with two ports, actually, because it sat on an isthmus, and it had so much, so much wealth that it was that it was legend that that the gold and the silver and the copper from all the idols melted and ran into the streets and created this Corinthian bronze. And so they took this beautiful alloy that was now the most valued, that valued metal in the world, and covered the beautiful gate. And it was here in the shadow of this amazing wealth that we see a person with no value. Now, we live in a world where 
disability is such a is such a cherished thing. We we take care of our folks. We enable them to do things right. They're, they're not disabled, but rather able to enter a building, able to enter the workforce, even able to participate in Olympic sports. But in the world of Jesus, a disability like a lame man would simply be um, a death sentence. It means that he could not he could not produce. He could not work. He could not he could not take care of anyone. And as such, he had no value. But here in the shadow of the gate beautiful, we see that he has more value to God than silver and gold. And two disciples are now empowered to be the hands and feet of their Lord. Let us not forget that it was Jesus himself on the last week of his life, after riding a donkey in a palm procession, entered the court of the Gentiles, which means the Temple Mount, with all the business of the money changing and the buying and selling of animals for the sacrifice. And he quotes Jeremiah chapter 711 when he calls all this a den of robbers, or to be even more precise with the Hebrew, a cave of outlaws. It looked beautiful, but Jesus didn't see that. He saw something tawdry, something cheap. He saw people instead, as God sees people instead, instead of silver and gold. I've got my own story, my own widow mite story, if you will, or even my own story of a lame man at the foot of the gate beautiful. When I was trying to get seminary, it took a minute, probably because I just worried everybody to death, but I at my home parish in Montgomery, they gave me something to do just to get me out of the hair, which was read daily morning prayer in the chapel. And it was a morning prayer service out of our prayer book. And it was something that I could do. And at first I started with a few friends, but they quickly fell off. And in time, it was only me and a woman named Mary Dean. And Mary Dean had a, well, she had a a mental problem of some sort. I think she was bipolar. She seemed to talk to herself a lot and she seemed to shout into the air and it was quite disturbing. She would hallucinate a little bit, and then sometimes she would sleep. And it would upset me because I was trying to read morning prayer, and Mary Dean was in the chapel making noise back there. And one day I'm walking down the hall pouting because I don't have any customers anymore. Nobody wanted to read morning prayer with me before work, and it was just me and this odd person. And a priest stopped me in the hall and said, how's it going? And I said, it's not going. It's just me and Mary Dean. And this otherwise gentle old man grabbed me by the throat and pushed me against the wall and said, don't you ever forget Mary Dean has a soul, and she is valuable to God. I never did, and after I finally made it to seminary and before Mary Dean's own death, she wrote me a card and she said, you are my favorite preacher, and I will never forget. It's no different than these stories from the Bible where we see the value of people over the value of cash. Well, I hope this has gotten you looking at money and the temple in a new way, and we'll keep it going. Thanks so much. Hi, Derek Belden here, your stewardship chair for St. Luke's. But today I'm here to talk about our theme for the coming year. It's all about get involved. Get involved with your church. Get involved with St. Luke's. Of course, I'd like you to get involved with giving, but there's so many ways to get involved with St. Luke's Episcopal Church. You can get involved in our youth programs. You can get involved in our food ministry. You can get involved in our outreach and in-reach programs. You can get involved in a fellowship group. The best way to know how to get involved is to go to our website and go through the page about getting involved. So if you do one thing this year, I'd of course like you to get involved in giving, but just get involved.